there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Hey, everyone. So I just want to remind you that this is the time that is most important. You're taking good notes about what's going on in your garden. What's working well? What's not working well? What do you wish you were going to change? And believe me, if you think you are going to remember it come next February and March when it's time to order supplies or do your designs, the best thing you can do is right now start taking notes. And if you don't have a journal already, I just want to mention from Amazon, you can support the Green Organic Gardener podcast by purchasing our journal um, it's a blank journal. It's got a beautiful picture of a butterfly on our lilacs that I took. It's got lined pages and blank pages. Um, and actually we get more from that, I think, than we do from the Organic Oasis Master Guidebook. So, um, it'd be a great way to support the show and help you most of all keep a good record of what's going right and what you don't want to forget to change for next year. Awesome my script. That's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm all I'm all about it. No, that's awesome. I'm super we, we'll make it happen. Um, yeah. So just jump in. You want me to tell people like my backstory? Okay. Um, so right. I'm Tori Williams Douglas. Um, and I am a writer and anti-racism educator. Um, I actually grew up in, was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. That's where I live now. Um, I've lived in the Pacific Northwest my entire life, um, mainly in Portland and Seattle. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't really, I kind of came to this work. Um, I sort of fell into it a lot of, a lot of different things sort of brought me to this place. Um, but I mean, initially, like, gosh, there's so many, there's so many places I could go. So the first thing that really, so, so go ahead. Did you go to Portland State University to their conflict resolution program? Like, do you know that they have a program there? I applied to go there and then I could never come up with the funding. And it's really hard to find a job in Portland. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It is, it is so <laughs> hard to find a job here. Um, I, I hear that for sure. Like you can't even be a substitute teacher without a master's degree, or at yeah. least that's what they told me. Yeah. No, that, that, that sounds right. Um, no, I did not. I have not attended that program. I've heard about it. Um, and I think that like conceptually it seems really good. I have a lot of friends obviously who've gone to Portland state. Um, so Yeah. And I might, right, I might, well, end, how I might, you get into this work. I might end up there. Um, I've been talking to, you know, the school of public health <laughs> about like going into that program. So, um, yeah, it was, um, it was a journey. Um, so I think that the thing that really kind of kicked it off for me was, um, when I got pregnant with my oldest child, um, I started doing all this research around birth outcomes for black mothers and they were abysmal. Um, so essentially finding out black mothers are three to four times as likely to die from pregnancy related complications than white moms. Um, and, uh, black infants are like twice as likely as white infants to die in like the first 30 days of life. Um, and that really kind of caught my attention, made me really nervous, um, for obvious reasons. And then, um, when I was pregnant with my second, um, that is when the Ferguson uprising happened as a response to Michael Brown being murdered. And that was kind of when I was like, okay, this is, this seems important. Like I need to start speaking out about this issue, um, and then fast forward another two years or so, two to three years. I'm trying to remember. I guess it's probably two years. I ended up getting a job at a, in a neuroscience lab at OHSU here in Portland. And, um, a, it's a super diverse lab and, um, the PI is black and, um, 
a lot of the postdocs were were people of color, and a lot of the work that was being done there was around um, racism and implicit bias, and um, it was just a really incredible learning experience. Even though I was working, <laughs> um, and and not like in the in the actual med school program, but that gave me a lot of, a lot more information and sort of kind of, it started to like back up what I had been learning sort of on my own. Um, and yeah, so I just sort of, I just sort of like fell into this. I had been very vocal, um, on Twitter and uh, like after Michael Brown was murdered and I like ended up losing like probably 60% or so of my Twitter followers because <laughs> people did not like what I had to say. Um, so, but yeah, eventually over time people started paying attention to like what I was putting out into, into the world. And um, yeah, I've actually been able to transition and do this full time now. So I do, as you said, I do the white homework podcast, um, which is a lot of fun. And um that was kind of the point, right? Was to be able to make anti-racism education not um, something other than this kind of like dull, boring, um, shame or guilt-inducing conversation. I wanted it to be a little bit more fun, a little bit more accessible, um, because I think it's easier to learn that way. Um, it's easier to learn when you think that the person who is teaching you actually likes you, right? And, and- go ahead. And I like the way that you have like action steps. You actually have homework for people to do where they can learn and grow. Like I've learned so much trying to finish. Um, I have lesson two yeah. about mass incarceration. And I I have, you know, a little bit of background in that. And I took a trauma informed class and awesome. some of the websites that I went to, I was like, I've been here before, but then a ton of other stuff. I'm like, wow, I had no idea. Yeah. And I love that you're all about um, restorative justice, which yes. maybe you want to talk about and explain what that is. Like, yeah. I just love the way you have all these ideas, like you have solutions, whereas so many people are like, oh, well, what can we do? And this is what we've always done. And like, you know, the way that you talk about punishment doesn't work, like mm-hmm. that we have solutions for our prison systems that we can, or maybe we don't have the solutions right now, but that there's a way to change it. And that, I don't know, there's just so much... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that was definitely, um, an aspect that I wanted to bring to the conversation was like, again, I not, it wasn't supposed to be hopeful necessarily, but it was supposed to, I wanted intentionally to create an environment where people felt like the work could be done. Um, where people weren't going, Oh my God, this is way too big for anyone to ever solve. And they just throw on the towel and walk away. Um, I wanted it to be, um, and, and I, like I said, it, people tend to, when it comes to racism, I think white people tend to go either like the shame guilt side, like ditch, or they go to the like kind of reactionary dismissive, that's not real ditch. And so <laughs> I wanted to be able to keep people on the road, right. Um, by talking about restorative justice and how restorative justice is good for everyone. Right. It's, it's, necessary for restoration to occur um, for people of color and that work primarily falls on on white Americans um, or any white people who live in like a colonized country but um, restorative justice is is also good for white people like it's good for your humanity it's good for your empathy it's good for your body right because it like lowers stress Um, you know there's a lot of talk around like police reform and abolition. And, and it's like, you know, something that I keep trying to bring up is, is like policing isn't good for police officers either. Like we have a system that really wears people down. It causes massive amounts of emotional and mental trauma. Um, there is a huge crisis of, of um, suicide among police officers. I'm like it doesn't have to be this way, uh, as my friend Andre Henry always says. So it's like trying to give people space to imagine what the world could be like if we are just brave enough to leave what we've always known behind. So, yeah. 
Exactly. Like, imagine it can be different. We can do this. Like, I have this big poster on our driveway on our pump house that says, war is obsolete because I believe we can get to a peaceful world. And like, I teach my kids over and over when I'm a teacher at school, like um, there's this book by Todd Park called The Peace Book. And it talks about peace is not just an absence of war. Peace Mm -hmm. is everybody having shoes, everybody having a home. Like the kids always laugh when it's like everybody having pizza, but I'm always like, do you know how many kids in the world would give anything to have a pizza once? Like they can't even fathom what a pizza looks like. Like when all our kids get to go to school, like everywhere, like I'm always, my mom's always like, well, that's their country's, you know, job to figure out. I I just don't feel that way. I'm Mm -hmm. like, we're humans. There should Mm -hmm. not be kids on our planet Mm -hmm. that are hungry, that don't have access to clean water for cooking or um, certainly for drinking, but also for cooking, for cleaning themselves. Yeah. Like this is 2020. And that's why I love millennials so much because I think you guys, you're not going to accept it. And you're not like, I see the actions you kids are taking every day. I call you kids because my husband is 14 years older than I am. So his daughters are both millennials Okay. (laughs) and my stepkids. So I always call them kids, even though I'm just in my fifties. But to me, I just think like, you're, you're going to make this change. I feel like my generation, I'm generation X and we, we might've, you know, protested and did a little bit of stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, we've obviously become complacent. Yeah. I I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. I think that a lot of people, a lot of millennials and, and the younger generation, the TBD zoomers or whatever we're calling them right now. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, they're, they're pretty impressive too. Yeah. And I think that I'm seeing coming from them. Yes. And I think that it's, it's really, we have been told that that the system works if you know how to work it, if you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you can, if you have grit and determination and don't let anything sidetrack you. Right. And we're like, okay, but we have the data now. It doesn't work. Um, It works. It works for a few people really, really well. And then doesn't work for most people at all. And yeah, being able to say, okay, it's really, it's not okay to live in a country specifically where there are billionaires and there are kids who don't have enough money to have a lunch at school. Like those two things cannot coexist in a moral country. Um, And so really kind of being willing to wrestle with these ideas um, of like, what does justice look like for the most marginalized people in society? What does it look like for everyone to have access to fresh, healthy food? right? And trying to imagine and creatively come up with solutions for, um, to help people survive in a system as it is and to create a new system that works for everyone. Um, instead of just working for the people it was designed to work for, which is not everyone. (laughs) Um, and you know, I'm really, I'm really grateful for, uh, you know, a lot of the people you know, my age who are, who are doing the work. Um, I mean, I'm great, but I'm grateful for anyone who is, is willing to learn, right. Who's willing to listen and learn and examine their own lives, motivations, behaviors, thought patterns, um, assumptions about the world and, and really kind of sit down with that and like apply a critical lens as opposed to going, well, again, this is just, this is just how we've always done it. And it kind of works for me or, you know, aspiration, like I don't want to tax billionaires because maybe one day I'll be a billionaire. It's like, no, you won't. Come on. Like, let's make this work for more people. Um, You know, something that I keep telling people um, on social media mainly is it's like, okay, there's, there's five, there's 550 billionaires in the U S and 550,000 people will go to sleep outside tonight. So you are basically a thousand times more likely to become homeless than to become a billionaire. Um, That's a great way to frame it. Right? And now they're saying there were 615 billionaires when Corona started, and now there's 630. So there's 15 new billionaires in the world since the coronavirus started. Right. But how many people have lost their 
jobs and their means. And I just don't feel like people are looking into the future and seeing the impacts that like, if we don't get this country together, we don't have time to waste. Mm -hmm. Businesses are not going to be able to go backwards and survive through next year. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, there's Mm -hmm. so much about the pandemic. I, I can't, and I'm married to a news junkie. So it's on over and over and over in different formats. And, and I understand the point of watching different formats and seeing it so you know what this person's saying and what this person's learning Mm -hmm. and that but for me it gets a little intense yeah I just am baffled by like I'm in rural Montana so people don't believe it here they're out like I'm almost scared to go out in public certainly in the late afternoons I would not go out with a mask on because I'm looked at as a radical liberal where I live and like yeah yeah um just it's just kind of I, I, I don't even know what to think. <laughs> anyway, mm. let's talk about solutions because yeah. I feel like you are, you know, that's like one of your greatest things is you have solutions for people. But I also feel like, like, so when George Floyd first happened, um, a lot of the podcasters that I was listening to were like, well, read White Fragility, read White Fragility. But I didn't feel like a lot of it came through to me until I started listening to your podcast. Like I didn't realize how white of a lens I was looking through that violence that what I consider violence is what white people consider violence. And and it's what's acceptable based on the society that we have right now, but that Mm -hmm. there are other, like other people might be like that. And like, even I argue with an English teacher about reading the hunger games. I'm like, the hunger games is so violent. Don't you feel that violent? And he just kind of looks at me and he's like, really? I, I mean, I guess like he doesn't think it's any more violent than anything else. But right. to me, I am so appalled by all the violence in that book. And just, I guess we all have different frames of mind. Mm-hmm. I'm getting mm-hmm. off topic. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there are, we do have lots of research. We have lots of data. We know how to, we know how to improve the system. And, um, I, I mean, I think that the thing that kind of ends up being the most frustrating, um, probably up until, up until the end of May was it felt like we have all this information. We, we know all of these things in terms of, you know, improving outcomes for people, um, and you know crime reduction or whatever whatever the thing is that you are concerned about it's like we have all of this data we can improve even if we don't even if we don't destroy the whole system right even if that's not what happens we can still improve outcomes for people by huge amounts and we have all of this information we know how to do it but it's like how are we going to get people to implement this <laughs> and um i you know recently in, in the last you know it, since since George Floyd was murdered. So, you know, about seven, has it been seven weeks now? Six, seven weeks, somewhere in there. Um, I feel like people are taking these not new ideas because a lot of these ideas have been around forever. It's just now we have the data to prove that they work. Um, So taking these ideas, these like abolitionist ideas and saying, hey, how can we implement this um, in our city? it's it's at this point i don't think that there's been a lot of movement on like the state level for most places um i mean especially when we talk about something like policing you know we can we can pass all the laws we can make all of the reforms but there's no way to enforce them um which again is intentional so that that option doesn't really work i mean last night um seattle uh cut the the seattle city council cut the budget for um seattle pd by 50 percent voted to cut the budget for seattle police department by 50 percent and put those funds into um mental health care and housing and social work um because again we know that these programs work but we spend you know, most cities, most big cities spend 40% of their budget on a police department. Um, yesterday, I was listening to a podcast yesterday or sometime in the last week or so. Um, and the host said, like, it's, our cities are set up in terms of like, in terms of their budget, it's like a small army with a city around it, right? Like we build, we build up the police department 
And that's like the thing that the city funds. Um, and again, it's like, we don't get good outcomes from this system. No one does. I mean, when you talk about assault, like especially sexual assault, like how many rape kits are just sitting? We know like hundreds of thousands of rape kits are just sitting on shelves in police departments right now because the system doesn't care about us, right? The system doesn't care if we are assaulted. The system has no motivation to go and track down the people who are committing violence, um, you know, so frequently, um, you know, 40% of- That's a really good point is that police officers, every time they go out there, they're putting their lives in danger. And so if we address these social issues, like if they're going to take that budget and put- you know, more money into mental health and, and, you know, housing, we're having such a housing crisis. Like you were talking about homelessness before there's 66,000 people in Los Angeles that either are living on a couch or um, on the streets or in a shelter or in their car. And I was talking to somebody like, well, why don't they just get a job? And I'm like, you know what, if you're living in your car, you probably have a job. Yeah. You have a car, yeah. you can get that car, you know, just, there's not 60,000, 66,000 probably unemployed people right. in Los Angeles, but you're counted as homeless if you don't have your own home, if you have to stay on your auntie's couch or, you know, here yeah. or there. People should be able to work. We have people working in this country, working full-time, husbands and wives working full-time that still can't afford mm-hmm. um, a home. Older people are constantly, like in our area, they keep talking about senior housing that we desperately need, you know? Mm. Yeah. And just so if they're taking some of that money away, and that was another thing that you talked about. If somebody is raped, the last thing they want is two police. And you talked about, was it 27% of police officers are domestic abusers themselves, I think. And then the last thing you want, if you've just been raped or sexually assaulted or something, or even just assaulted Mm -hmm. is for somebody like that to come to you. A social worker could come see you. I mean, if you're still in danger and the perpetrator is still around, yeah, maybe you want the police if that's, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I I think that's such a great point. And I think, you know, as a lot of people have started saying in the last couple of weeks, it's like, there's still, it's not like when you call 911, no one is going to pick up. Like, that's not what we're talking about. There's still going to be services. They just aren't going to be someone who got three to six months of training with a sidearm. And that's all they know, right? They don't know anything about crime prevention or de-escalation like they know how to shoot and that's the only tool we give them so we shouldn't be surprised when they use it yeah and when you get in those situations people's like blood you know your blood's literally boiling your pressure you can feel Mm -hmm. your blood flowing Mm -hmm. through your veins more all of a sudden you're like probably not even making the smartest decisions because I mean, I can compare it to being in a classroom when I've been like, well, what should I, you know, later on I can be like, oh, well, this is maybe what I should have done. I could have right. diffused that situation. But when you're in the heat of the moment, it's always different. And then, but also like if we addressed a lot of the social issues, we wouldn't have so many problems. Exactly. We have people like exactly. that's what always bothers me is that, you know, I just, I feel like I've argued with so many times about people who are drunks and like, why would somebody go buy a 12 pack on their kid's birthday instead of, and drink that instead of getting, it's because in their mind, they're supposed to provide this perfect party for their kids. And so they feel like, well, if I can't provide this perfect party, it, you know, for the little bit of money, it's going to cost me to forget about it and drink this thing. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to get over the failure. They have no hope for themselves. They don't have enough confidence in their ability to be a provider or the system has beat them down so much that they, they are unable no matter how hard they work. And just, you can't just look at it as that. Like I used to argue with teachers all the time. They'd be like, Oh, their parents are just such drunks. And Oh, the parents did this or oh, why not their parents read to them? I'm like, how many classes have we taken on how to read and pull up the vocabulary from a book? You can't compare what you know what to do and how to read to a child to a parent who's barely, you know, maybe their parents didn't read to them or they didn't do this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I just, mm -hmm. um, I always feel like there's this big blame game going on and, and ultimately it's our country as a whole that should be providing a, yes. a, a basic decent standard of living that you know we keep hearing tom hartman was saying yesterday on the news about if we go back to school remotely you know where how's that gonna fare like the kids that i taught last year from a wealthy whitefish 
I mean, you know, I had a mix of parents and not everybody was, but certainly they all had available internet access. They mm. all, either the school gave them a computer or they had a computer. Yeah. You know, we have really good internet in Northwest Montana because there's a lot of big remote people who have come in here that have made sure. But I, mm. lots of people ask me, there's not as great of internet in other parts of Montana, yeah. in rural places, and, the, and certainly around our country. Um. I forget where yeah, I was going. Absolutely. I've heard that Oregon, I have a friend in Oregon who's like, absolutely. He's like, we are not getting internet because that should be broadband should be free for everybody. It should be, a, you know, the government should make sure that everybody has equal access to, because I guess. Yeah. Oregon, it's a it's utility. Expensive it is. And- it is. But it's, yeah, it's a utility. It's necessary. If When you tell someone, go get a job, you can't get a job without internet access, right? Like you either have to have a smartphone or like a tablet and access to the internet like you it's yes i totally hear you it's almost impossible anymore yeah and i think you bring you bring up such an amazing point about trauma right and like yeah when so many times especially like white people i think don't really understand the systemic trauma piece of parental failure in this case like just using the example that you gave of like parents not reading to their kids consistently enough um, or, you know, doing other things that are educational, um, you know, whatever that looks like. And I think that there's two pieces to that. One is maybe like a lot of people just don't have the resources. I mean, like I've, I've been that parent where I, you know, wanted to be able to take, you know, take my kids out on a hike and it's like, oh, this is really like, this is hard. Like you have to have a car, you have to have gas money. You've got to have like all these other little things, right? Hand sanitizer and, and water bottles and a little backpack. And, you know, if your kids are really small, you've got to take diapers and wipes. And it's just like, oh, this is, this is tough. You know, it's like, okay, how am I going to get my kids through? Like, even if it's like a small trail, like, how am I going to get my kids through if one of them falls down, scrapes their knee and like, can't walk for, you know, what are we going to do in those kind of situations? And, um, so I completely understand that like there is a piece of that that like especially if you have anxiety which I mean if you've you know if you've been exposed to violence like you probably have anxiety or depression um and again like poverty instigates violence like across it doesn't matter if it's like rural Montana or if it's Memphis or Moscow or Mombasa like it like it doesn't matter where there is poverty you are going to see crime um and, and anybody who tries to argue differently, like, hi, we have numbers on this. We can talk about this. But, you know, when you have someone who is exposed to, who sees violence, who doesn't know necessarily where their next meal is coming from, who doesn't know necessarily who's going to be caring for them the next day, right? You grow up and you become an adult who's trying to, again, work in this system that works pretty well if you haven't experienced trauma, if you had a consistent, like, you always knew that your parents were going to be home at 5.30 p.m. and that was never, like, something you had to worry about. You always knew that you were going to have a meal that your mom made for you fresh out of the oven, like, every day. 6:30 that was your thing. You always knew that your parents are going to read you a bedtime story at 8 p.m. Like having that experience leads to very different outcomes for people, mainly white people, but I mean people of color, some of us get to experience that too. Um or even like is my electricity going to get Exactly. Shut off? Exactly. And having like that take being poor takes up so much of your I'm like totally pivoting to like the neuroscience piece of it. But being poor takes up so much of your prefrontal cortex in terms of the amount of energy you have to expend to just figure out how you're going to like shuffle things around and and pay bills. Um and again, like we've done studies on this in the states in terms of like in terms of poverty and um, like the loss of sleep because of stress. And, and they get the exact same results when, in studies that are done in India with people who live on the street and who are just trying to survive. Um, like it's just a massive amount of stress and you're using so much of, you, ha- you know, your, your body limits the amount of energy that your brain can use during the course of the day because it's a very energy intensive um, organ, right? It's like 25% of your energy every day is just your brain. Um, and so we, you know, we're looking at these, we're looking at all this data and we're seeing that like these situations are one easy to fix and 
two, consistent across the board, right? It's not like, oh, they're lazy. Oh, they're not trying hard enough. It's like, no, trauma has these effects. They are predictable. We can help mitigate them as a society if that is what we choose to do. Um, and it's just like, where is the like political will to make these changes, right? Because again, it becomes a generational thing, right? If you didn't have security as a child, you are probably not going to be able to provide security no matter what your intentions are for your own kids. Like, that's just how brains work. That when a brain experiences trauma, when a body experiences trauma, that is much more likely to be the outcome for their children as well. Do you know about that thing? It's called the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Mm -hmm. Study. Yeah. And so that original study was done on like college, something like 80, I can't remember, but like that was a big thing we talked about when I took a trauma-informed class Mm. in Browning was that it was started out on college-educated white yes. people. And it's yeah. like these 10 questions. And if if you've had these 10 things, and so I'm taking in this room and like most of the people in the room have between four to seven. And I, I think I was the only one in the room who had zero. Like in my, mm-hmm. that's the life that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And people just don't understand the link between, and I'll put the link to the study. People can go check that ACE thing out. But yeah. Um, yeah, trauma will affect you for your whole life based mm-hmm. on um I forgot where I was going with that. Yeah, no, I mean it it does. It in if if you don't ever if you can't ever catch a break, right? Like yeah, it impacts you your entire life and then you statistically are going to die 7 to 13 years earlier than someone who just hasn't experienced those same traumas. Right. Um, so I think that, yeah, you're, you're right. You're right on the money. And, and, you know, I think that a lot of the trauma, like, as you said, because I think it was like a Kaiser foundation study that was done in like San Diego. Um, the first ACE test that, that went out to, um, to, to folks. And yeah, as you said, it was mostly middle-class college educated white folks. And those were the, those were some of the things not ever. And again, like not everybody had experienced everything clearly, but those were some of the traumas they experienced. Like what if you went and you took, um, you talked to like couple hundred 17 year olds in LA who have been housing insecure for their entire lives. Like what would those traumas look like? You know, um, and again, right, if you if we don't give people a break and breathing room, then yeah, the cycle just is going to repeat itself and people do the best that they can with the margin that they have left over. But if we really want things to improve for everybody, we have to do more work And that. I mean, that's why I, with white homework, I decided that I wanted to use my Patreon to pay the rent for a family of color for a year um, because being able to get that breathing room and that space is so important to me. Um, you know, as someone who grew up really poor. Um, and so I just really was like, how can I, how can I give, how can I use white homework to give back to people? Um, and that was, that was just the opportunity that like made the most sense to me. Um, but yeah, it's like, we know how to fix these things. It's just, do we have the will to fix them? Yeah. So what are some of the solutions you would like to see put into place when you're UN attorney general? Hmm. And so, okay. I was like, one thing that I think would be really important, um, going a little bit less less broad because I, I spend most of my time and work and re- research um, in the U.S. One thing that is really important to me is I want to go through and do a state-by-state state analysis of um, how long people of color, so in the South, primarily Indigenous and, and Black people, were prevented from accessing the polls or prevented from running um, running in local elections. And I want to take, so, and I got this just so people know, cause they can go look it up. I got this idea from the book when affirmative action was white by Ira Katz Nelson. And I highly recommend that to people just because it's, it's short and it's super accessible and talks about um, 
the ways that the U.S. intentionally created these systems and these tracks for people based on their skin color and like getting out of your track is kind of tough. Um, so looking at like, okay, we had Mississippi became a state in 1819, I think. I, I can't remember. And um, Mississippi tried really, really hard, like minus reconstruction, Mississippi tried really hard to make sure that no black people and no native people were allowed to vote until it, until the 1960s, right? Until the civil rights act. Um, so how, like just doing the math, how many years was that? And then I'm like, okay, let's take those, that number of years and we're going to create X number of additional congressional seats and two more Senate seats for Mississippi and people of color exclusively get to vote on those for those people who are running. Um, And we just give them a temporary, like over, we give them temporary over-representation at the federal level to make up for this very systemic intentional injustice where we were excluded from being able to participate in, in like our own outcomes, right. In our own lives and our own destinies, because we were excluded from being able to vote. And so to me, I think that that would be one thing that would be huge because, you know, you're going to have how many, how many Southern states were there? You're going to have, you know, my brain isn't working right now. An extra 20, senators or so and an extra probably hundred people in in congress um who are people who were running specifically for people of color right they didn't have to try to earn the white vote in order to get elected because these votes specifically are for black indigenous people of color um and then it's like, okay, this is a temporary seat that's going to exist for, you know, 160 years or however long your state was, you know, your state existed, but you excluded people of color from participating. And then it expires, <laughs> then it goes away. Um, and we can go back to, you know, we can reevaluate at that time and say like, hey, like, did this work? Were we able to make change that works again for everyone and not just for, um, and not just for a select few. Um, the book that I am reading right now is called Dying of Whiteness, and it's by uh, Dr. Jonathan Metzl. And he digs into, um, he really digs into the data around the way that white people frequently will vote against um, social services that would benefit them as individuals because they feel that people of color are not entitled to those services. So no one should get them essentially. And um, it's really interesting because it, again, like this behavior has a net negative impact on the lives of white people. It has a net negative impact on um, their kids opportunities, right. To, for college and careers. Um, it has a net negative impact on, on rates of suicide and we ha- I think, again, it's like we have to be able to look at the data and go, okay, these things that we have been doing are not working and we need to, we know what works and we need to change to something that is going to work better for more people across the board. Well, I mean, I just think that's so important, but I think you're going to have a hard time when we can't even get people to vote in the elections we have. Like, didn't Kentucky, wasn't that where they just did the thing where... They had like six, oh, was it 6,000 people had one polling place to go to mm-hmm. on the, at the primary? Like, yeah. I don't understand. Why can't we just, every school has an election thing at every school? Like, wh- what is going on that we have so many um, problems having polling places open? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, that voter it, suppression is a very serious yeah. problem. <laughs> um, and, you know, if for people who are listening, like one of the ways that you can actually help mitigate that is to volunteer to become a poll worker. Um, some of those positions are paid, some of them aren't, but that can make voting more accessible to more people, like the more poll workers there are. Um, so 
something to think about. Also, like, if we would go back, when I was a kid, we did not go to school on Election Day. Election Day and Veterans mm. Day were, like, Tuesday and Thursday, and they were holidays, and parents were home. We did not have school. And I've always went to the voting booth with my mom. Like, I remember, like, I think taking your kids with you is super important. Mm -hmm. And I think also, like, if we could go back to where it was a holiday where we had that day off so people didn't have to worry about trying to get to vote when they have to go to work or they can't stand in line because they have, you know, they could only stand in line first. I don't even understand why people should have to stand in line. We should be able to vote in this country. Absolutely. You know, just as easy it is for me, I've never had to really stand in line more than 10 minutes at the most. I don't think anybody should have to stand in line for that long. Like, it's voting. Right. Or, like, now we should be able to vote by mail anyway. That's almost easier. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I yeah. always liked going to vote. It was kind of a romantic thing my husband mm-hmm. and I did together. But, That's um, awesome. you know, it's just as easy to go throw the ballot in the mailbox. And I feel like that would be better so those are ways listeners could help um change things yeah. what do you think about washington dc they're talking about becoming a state yeah i mean i think that that would be that's important right like the entire premise ostensibly of of america and independence was like we don't want taxation without representation and this is for some reason what we decided to do to Washington DC like that's that's not okay like that's not in line with the values that we claim we have so uh yeah let's fix that real quick that would be amazing so what else do you want to tell listeners you're probably like i want to get off this phone it's been a long time although we still have a few minutes to go to hit my prn 53 minutes but we'll be okay there like what do you like? What are the big takeaways you want people to go away with thinking that they could do for? I mean, you've given us quite a few ideas, but like, um, I would say that the biggest things would probably be like understand that like it's not impossible. You can make a difference. Like your voice actually matters, um, and advocating for justice actually matters whether whether or not like we we see the changes that we want to see like making small incremental changes on the individual level like you know just what i decided to do personally with with white homework and and pay the rent um like that matters we even if we can't fix things systemically right now at this moment we can still make a difference on an individual to individual level um and uh, the other piece I would say is just like self-education, which I guess is like, those are really like what I talk about all the time on my homework. It's like, this is, this is your work. This is your job and you can do it. You have the skill set necessary to do, to educate yourself and then to come up with a plan of action that works for you and your family, your community, like the amount of privilege that you have or don't have. And um, I mean, yeah, I, I think that it's like empowering people to self-educate and then take the next steps. Being able to put that education into action is super important. You know, what's another one that's probably hard for people to go to. Like when I went to Portland to go check out PSU, I went on the worst weekend, like not even paying attention and went over Labor Day weekend. So I couldn't meet any professors. The school was closed. Oh, it was like the dumbest thing I ever did, but it was the weekend I had to go. And so, um, anyway, but so I went and spent a lot of time at the art museum, Hmm. but I'll bet those are hard things for parents to do. Um, just to get to go do things in a museum when you have and just because you got to bring almost all those same things Mm -hmm. to do something like that yeah yeah absolutely and I always tell people in Montana like it's super expensive to go to Glacier Park like I think anymore like it's like $50 for a pass and I feel like you know if you have kids it's hard enough to just come up with the gas money and the you know the picnic food and the like you said the shoes for your kids to wear how are you going to come up with that money you know there's so many families especially on the reservation Mm -hmm. where you know i work that borders up against the park now they probably actually 
they might not need a pass to get into the park now that I say it, but um, certainly on my side of the mountain where there's not as, you know, people are more in the, in the county I'm in. So next to the reservation, we have the highest unemployment in the state frequently. Mm, okay. And it's a very poor community. Like I told the people frequently that I worked with, there's nothing I've seen over here on the reservation that I haven't seen yeah. um, in the county where I live. Like I know eight people that have committed suicide, two of them um, kids. Mm. One of them I taught at Head Start when he was an eighth grader committed suicide. And then um, just, I've seen poverty here so intensely because it is a very difficult place to make a living. Yeah. And um, there aren't a lot of jobs. And so there is a lot of alcohol and there's a lot of drugs and there's a lot of um, abuse and domestic violence and things. And, but it's just on the reservation, they have like 20,000 people where we have like 3000 people or something here. Like it's a much smaller town. So it's, you know, it doesn't happen as frequently and you don't see as much of it, but definitely you see the effects of poverty where, um, I live and the, and the cyclical amount of it. And so, so many mothers that I have talked to are, you know, they're just like, they can't even imagine, they can't even like fathom them having a job that would pay more right. than they're going to get on um, food stamps. Yeah. And then the other one that I was always arguing with teachers about is like, you know, technically most people are on food stamps for six months and you get a dollar seventy two a meal, I think, or it's less than two dollars a meal per person. And I would like to see people try to and on my show, like one of the reasons I started my show is, you know, we talk about organic food a lot, but if you're not growing your own organic food, like trying to go to the grocery store and and buy that food. I struggle to buy organic food. I struggle mm -hmm. just to buy produce in general, like yeah. not even organic, just a lot of the times I go to Absolutely. Store, oh my gosh, how can I afford this? And here's like a tombstone pizza for five bucks as compared to here's a, you know, thing of strawberries for five bucks. That's going to last like, you know, there's just processed food, a thing of craft macaroni and cheese is so much cheaper than, you know, even buying bananas or something or, you know, a, organic squash or, or or regular squash or broccoli or cauliflower is just crazy sometimes yeah. just yeah there's always things that um i just feel like people take for granted that they don't realize that other people can you imagine and so many people that wanted to vote for donald trump when he was running like would tell me they're like well I don't want my money that I work so hard for. Like they were so against Bernie Sanders and my husband and I were big Bernie um, supporters. And they're just like, I'm not going to let my hard earned money go to help somebody who's so lazy. They're going to stay on their couch. But I have yet to meet people that are so lazy that they want someone else to work for them. People want a paycheck. People, mm -hmm. if you don't, if you feel like you're going to go to work and you're going to struggle and you're going to maybe get a job at the town pump and you're never going to leave that job at the town pump, you know, yeah. people where I grew up, they're going to think I'm going to go to the town pump and then I'm going to become the manager and then I'm going to get hired to go somewhere else. Like they have hope, they have vision that they can do better. But if, if you don't have that confidence in yourself that you can provide, you know, a basic standard of living. You, you, it, that's where I feel like a lot of people in our country struggle because they don't feel like that. And in a lot of ways, they're not ever going to get a better job than that. I mean, my stepdaughter worked at the local grocery store all through high school and never, they never gave her a raise and for mm -hmm. three years. And even after she graduated and she was still working there full time, she's still making minimum wage the whole time, even though she was in charge of the produce department, wow. she was in charge of making orders and doing all these things. She was, she was still always working for minimum wage. And then that's the other one. If you pay people minimum wage, you can pay a manager with a college degree, a dollar more per hour and pay yeah. somebody $9 an hour. Yeah. And just like things like that, that's where to me, systemic poverty comes from in a lot of ways. Yeah. People don't even know, um, you know, what they could that they have the potential they don't have the confidence they don't they don't have the successes the the series of successes it takes to believe that they can take control of their own life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. absolutely yep Sorry. absolutely so i think that right it's if there are small ways that we people who are passionate about this can work can you to tell them i'm passionate about um, Jackie, I couldn't really tell. <laughs> um, if, if there are small ways that we can collaborate to make things better, again, just like 
one or two families at a time, like that makes a huge impact. Um, it's not going to fix everything, but like in the meantime, it does actually improve the outcomes of people's lives. And I think that that is so, so important. Tori, thank you so much for sharing with us today. And just, I wish you the best and just keep on rocking that mic and doing what you're doing and turning me and all your listeners ears on to all these great resources. Like I've been listening to Ear Hustle and um, mm, nice. uh, what's the other one? Um, is it Alex? Uh, um, just all these different podcasts, the books that you recommended, and I'll make sure they get in the show notes and just... Um, you know, having these conversations and being willing to take the time, like the other day you were saying, I'm so tired <laughs> from talking to people and just trying to explain to people and just, um, but your work is so important. You are making a difference and people like me are listening and hopefully my listeners are enjoying this and um, just keep on doing what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. This is awesome. It's nice to talk to people who are really fired up and passionate about making change in, in a, in a real way. So I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you because I feel like I, you know, I've certainly learned a ton, but I feel like a lot of the things that you say just like are near and dear to my heart and things that I've tried to tell people and just, I don't know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Awesome. crazy world we live in. Well, get sure outside is. and enjoy that beautiful sunny day. And yep. I will send you the recording when it's live. And thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Uh, all right. Have a great day. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Tori. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. Hey, listeners. So it is July 25th, 2020, right in the middle of summer. And I'm telling you, this is the time to be taking notes for next year. You should be writing down things that are going well, things that didn't go well. Which seeds do you like the best? Which seeds didn't germinate so well? Which areas of your garden um, do you want to change? What do you not want to remember? I guarantee you, even if you think, I will never forget this, I have moved this pipe or this hose 20 times, I'm never going to forget not to do this next year. Come February, it is all good because by the time you get done with harvest at the end of this year, it is all going to be like, what was that that was driving me crazy? Trust me, it's the time to write it down. And so if you want to support the Green Organic Gardener podcast while you're writing it down in a beautiful journal... Um, you can get one from Amazon. I think it's only like five ninety five or six ninety five. It's got a beautiful butterfly on lilacs from our garden, so it could be a piece of our garden in your garden. It's got lime pages and blank pages, and just um, will help you be the best gardener and putting your best work, like remembering how to be the most effective gardener you can be. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.